Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. Um, to do the intro today, I brought on a very special guest. It's a little lady who's quarantined inside with me. I am now teacher dad, and teacher dad has tasked her with creating something. So we're going to create the intro and outro to this podcast. Um, so I have my six-year-old Harper here. Harper, say hello. Hello. Are you excited to do the intro to this podcast? Yes. Okay, today we are sitting down and we are going to chat with, and by we, I mean me, because I've already recorded this. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to chat with Ryan Wanless and Emily Wanless. We had them on about a month ago, and they were preparing for Ryan to run the 350-mile Iditarod race in Alaska. What do you know about Alaska? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing? What do you know about the Iditarod? I don't know. What do you know about Ryan and Emily Wanless? I don't know. Oh, my gosh, dude. Okay, we're going to have to educate my daughter real quick. So I'm going to stop the intro. I'm going to teach her what the Iditarod is and what Alaska is and all about the complete Harper earmuffs. Cover your ears. Badasses, Ryan and Emily, and we're going to uh, continue the intro after that. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. I don't know how effective that teaching was. <laughs> what do you think? Did you learn a lot about Alaska? Maybe. What do you know about Alaska? Alaska is far to the north. Good job. Next to um Santa Claus, the North Pole. North the North Pole. <laughs> what kind of animals do you think live in Alaska? Like, Ryan had to be out there with animals. What kind of animals do you think he uh, saw or heard or anything like that? Wolves. He did hear wolves. And we'll get into that in this episode of the podcast. What other animals do you think are up there in the mountains? Mm, mountain goats. Oh, yeah, maybe. That's cool. Um. Okay. Uh, what did you know about the Iditarod? What is it? I feel like I'm putting you on the spot. We want to look at the pictures really quick. Here's Ryan. Here's a picture he sent me. He's got his raccoon hat, and he's got this thing over his nose so his nose doesn't get cold. What do you think about that? I don't know. What do you think? Does he look like a cool dude? He looks weird. He looks weird? He's the coolest dude ever. He decided to go to Alaska, and here's his sled with his tent and all that stuff and his... Uh, thing to cook stuff look at that that's beautiful he decided to go up there in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the wilderness all by himself and he decided he was going to travel 350 miles on foot isn't that crazy yes (laughs) uh what other pictures did he send here's his snowshoes Here's some beautiful pictures of Alaska. Does it look like there's a lot of people in Alaska? Maybe. Is there any people in this picture? No. (laughs) Do you think you want to go to Alaska someday? Maybe. You're a fascinating interview, my friend. (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) Should we get into the podcast? Should we listen to Ryan and Emily tell us their stories? 
Yes. All right, let's do it. This is the Like a Bigfoot podcast number 192. Ryan Wanless is going to tell us the tale of the Alaskan wilderness along with his wonderful wife, Emily Wanless. Harper, scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you? Very excited. Very excited, scale of 1 to 10. All right, let's do it. Uh, let's get into the episode, guys. We'll uh, we'll get back to you at the end with Harper. All right, guys. I am here with Emily and Ryan Wanless after the big Iditarod adventure, which we're going to hear all about. Um, but first, we were talking about online happy hours. And uh, they mentioned that uh, Ryan's been requiring people to bring random facts. And so teach me, guys, what random facts are you learning? Well, I guess the first one is, is that a rat can go without water longer than a camel. And we thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. But then we figured out a camel can go seven months without water. Oh my God. <laughs> that's crazy. Even by... Keep in mind, our fact checking, I, I don't think our, buy, our bar is really high. So um, we're just going to take these as face value, I think. I'm cool with that. Yeah. If it's a fact like that, that blows my mind. I almost like don't even want to check the facts, you know? Right. Ryan came up with one that said, um, you can tell that the temperature in Fahrenheit without a thermometer if you listen to the amount of times a cricket chirps in 15 seconds and then add 37 seconds. Wait. What? Or 37, add 37, and then that's the temperature. I don't know how that works. <laughs> right. Again, fact-checking. Totally optional. <laughs> Can I tell you guys one real quick? Absolutely. Okay. Do you know how they just... Well, and this is just going to be the most vague story ever. Um but do you know how they discovered cheese? No. No. Okay. So let me, this is, I've used this as my, like a chemistry example. And I don't know if you can hear my kids are just completely arguing, like breaking (laughs) down outside of the door here. Um, so I just have to call that out. Um, (laughs) um, funny. So is our dog. (laughs) (laughs) But well, then, we can put him in a crate. yeah, that's true. Well, then, like two seconds later, they're best friends again. So you're like, do I interfere in this argument, or this battle, or do I let it play itself out? You know? Oh, better than you, you than us. <laughs> but anyway, so apparently, way back when, and you know, like I said, all the actual like dates and stuff, no idea. But they people used to use like camel stomachs as backpacks and so they would travel between towns with camel stomach backpacks and they put milk in it um to like you know transfer milk between towns and um apparently the acid in the milk or in the stomach curdled all that milk and so they got to the next town and they opened up the stomach backpack and they were just like, what is this? And someone was probably like, I don't know. I bet it's, let's call it cheese. And they're like, we should eat it. And then they did. And then it was delicious. So there you go. Love it. Thank you. I'm adding it to my list. 
<laughs> All right, guys. Well, so how I gotta like, I mean, I want to jump into the Iditarod for sure. Um, but just the Alaska experience in general, like, how was it? It, I mean, it was, it was awesome. It was, it was more than, you know, you could ever dream of or, or hope for. Um, you, you know, you met guys the morning of the race would see him out on the trail three or four times and you know they became your your best friends forever it seemed like um i mean just the amount of friendships that i've taken away from this whole race thing is is probably more friends than i've added to my life in any single week or you know ever even probably more than my first day of kindergarten wow is that because you're finding these like like-minded souls who are doing the same thing as you you know, I, I think a lot of that is, you know, as much as we're alike, a lot of us are, are different when you hear of, you know, the different people's backgrounds, what they come to, you know, when they come there. But part of the, um, I mean, I think part of it is, is this year was a really, really challenging and, and tough year. I don't think anyone will deny that. But you would you'd get done with this stretch and you're just like, this is the hardest stretch of anything I've ever done in my life. You know, I can't, I can't believe I made it through this. It's, it's so nice to be, you know, to the checkpoint or, or to a safe place. And like when you walk into the tent or cabin, you know, and you look at the other three people that are there resting, you know, they're, they just look up and say, you know, Hey, nice, nice job. And you're just like, you know, you want to tell them about all this that you went through, but, in the back of your mind, you're just like, they went through the exact same thing as I did, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so I'd lay down, get my stuff out. And then another guy would come through the tent door and he'd have the look on his face that I just had on my face an hour ago of, you know, kind of like, man, that was, that was pretty tough. Like, I can't believe I made it through here. And, uh, you know, you just look at them the same way everyone looked at you and, and say, you know, nice work. And, that was it. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of back padding, uh, you know, of anything out there is, you know, we we're all kind of in it together. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, so can you take us back to the, the start line, uh, for both of you guys, you know, like what was the experience like from your perspective, Ryan? And then what was the experience like from yours, Emily? Emily start. Okay. <laughs> um, it was a really kind of low key morning. Uh, the race didn't start till two, and it was about an hour-ish drive to get there. And everybody gets there an hour early because I guess it's kind of customary that everybody gets a burger and fries from the <laughs> bar that it starts at. And I'll—I'm not gonna lie. I mean, it was traditional bar fare food, but it looked phenomenal. So they did it right. Um, my sister had gotten in the night, uh, the day before, and my best friend had a horrible travel day, and so she didn't get in until everybody went to bed. Um, I stayed up with her. And then the next morning, both of them weren't really sure, you know, kind of where Ryan's head was going to be at, and, like, this is such an epic journey, and they didn't want to be in the way, but they had so many questions. And Ryan was, like, Mr. Chill just laughing and playing music and telling jokes. And my favorite story is um, my friend Katie kind of took a uh, Instagram video of the whole setup of Ryan packing his sled up. And it was just like chaos, you know, with, with stuff everywhere. <laughs> yeah. 
And he's telling this really inappropriate joke in the background because he doesn't realize that he's being videoed. <laughs> and she went ahead and um, posted it anyway and used the hashtag ITI Alaska. Well, they reposted it on Instagram. <laughs> and so two things about the story are funny. One is the joke being told in the background. And then also um, ITI made the comment about how he was like the most relaxed and prepared racer and meanwhile like it's a total shit show with like his sled because he just throws stuff in and goes like he doesn't he's not the guy that's packing and repacking and figuring out like ordering where he wants to put stuff where no he just throws it all in and and goes but they had the perception that because he looks so calm (laughs) that it was all under control and he he was calm so that was really fun and i think it was great to have them there because it was good distraction um, you know, you know, it wasn't all about the race. It was catching up with friends and, and, uh, family. And so that was really a great morning. That's awesome. And, and bacon. There's lots of bacon. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> where, so Ryan, where was your head at? Like, I mean, are you relaxed on the outside, but kind of freaking out on the inside or, are you like, cause I've done this where I've come into an aid station where my wife or my friends have been. And I'm like, I'm going to play it super cool, even though I'm like struggling. Um, you know, they say for this race that you pack your insecurities in your sled and, um, you know, you can get weighed down in a hurry by that. So I just, you know, I knew I was in good shape. I had a good year of racing. Um, I knew it was going to be a pretty tough, you know, a tough, 300 ish miles. Uh, so I just kind of really focused on, you know, what, what do I really need? I, I know I can't take all day long to get this thing done because of weather. And it just seems like every day something else comes up or the trail gets worse or, you know, instead of two feet of snow, they're going to have four feet of snow or three feet of snow. Yeah. Um, so I just, you know, I really just concentrated on thinking, you know, what do I really need um, worst case scenario, what do I need? And, uh, you know, just kind of packed it that way. And I think I came in, you know, with, with all, with a full sled, with all the water I needed. Um, I was probably at 40 or just under 40 pounds, um, which for me, I felt pretty, um, pretty good about, you know, that weight and, uh, you know, I guess the, the, what I had to carry for those 300 plus uh, miles out there yeah yeah so i know the first day it just like dumped snow on you guys did that start like right while you're standing at the start line or or was that after you already started going it, it pretty much we started going maybe in the first two or three miles it it just started snowing and then emily was gonna jump in at like mile 10 they call you know they have like what they call a trail ferry where random things could just appear alongside the trail. It could be with a person handing something out or something. And she was, they were going to jump in on the trail and, uh, you know, meet us as we came through. Well, as soon as it started snowing, I knew it would be three hours or more before we even got there. And, um, I was just hoping that they'd, she'd gone back to Anchorage. I didn't, didn't want her out in that weather. It's getting pretty bad. And it was, it was really funny. I guess it wasn't funny, but, you know, less than eight hours into the race, you see people already starting to pull out their bivy and 
Wow. Um, you know, making water, which most people I think were hoping to get pretty close to Yetna um, on the first, you know, first long push and getting a good rest there. But um, where we split from the bikers, the bikers just had an awful time. They kind of take a flat track, which adds about three more miles, but usually they're biking and it's faster than going an overland route, which all the people on foot and skis take, which is a little bit more hilly, but it cuts off three miles. So normally the bikers can, and us converge and they're in front of us. But this time when I converged on the river, um, I'd heard that there's 30 to 40 bikers camping up the river about two to three miles. Cause once you get on the river, you're pretty exposed and, um, you know, the weather just really, really picks up. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy, man. Well, so just so you know, me and my seventh graders had your little tracker up pretty much the whole time you were out there. And even by the end, they were asking like, how far is he? And I just remember uh, watching your little tiny blue dot as you made it to the river. And then I like zoomed out the map and I'm like, oh my God, he's on this river forever. You know? Oh yeah, I felt that. Um, I was I was amazed at the amount of people that Blue Dot watched for those eight <laughs> days. Um, I, I got a message sent to me from a guy in Texas. Listened to the podcast. Said it's on his you know bucket list of things to do, and he's only seen snow you know a half dozen times. Whoa! And, uh, yeah, I was just like you know when you're ready, give me a call. I'll you know tell you everything I. I knew, you know, when I started and, um, I, you know, as big as it was, I'd say by no means is this above anyone's head that if they really, really wanted to do it, um, you know, they couldn't get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that's crazy. So Emily, right after he started and then you realized like you couldn't see him 10 miles in, you know, how I, I was thinking, I'm like, man, I'm cause watching the blue dot, I'm like, I'm freaking out. I can't even imagine how Emily's feeling. <laughs> no, I, you know, I can't explain it. Like it, it was never, I was never worried about him and his safety. Um, as the weather got worse and worse and worse, I just didn't want it to be so miserable. Like yeah. I wanted him to be a little bit miserable. Like he was saying, <laughs> like nobody wants to be the, the easy year, right? You want to be like able to tell the war stories. And so I wanted him to have the full ITI experience, but I didn't want him to like do any more suffering than necessary. And as the weather kept getting worse, I mean, it was just like one thing after another. And then when the weather got better, then the moose got bad. And it was just like, yeah. ah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it wasn't nerve wracking. I, I was trying to explain it to people watching along. I, I've never had a newborn and I don't have a lot of experience with people who do have newborns during that point in their life. But to me, what what I went through was slightly like having a newborn. Like every two hours, I would wake up in the middle of the night. I would pull up the tracker, yeah. half asleep. Are you alive? Do you need, not that I can do anything for you, but do, does it look like you need anything? Nope, you're okay. And then I would put the phone down. I'd go back to sleep for a couple more hours and I'd wake back up. And I didn't even set an alarm. It was just kind of like checking in but um really there's there there was good communication the first probably three days i think uh there's one time he facetimed me on the trail and i was with my friend and sister and that was really fun because he was going through i know technology it's amazing and 
Um, so that was pretty cool. But um, what was I saying? Oh, when it got really bad, there's always like a few questions that I ask him, like if it's, if he's coming into an aid station, or if um, in this case he's texting with me, or in IT or Arrowhead if he's texting with me. There's a couple of questions that I always ask him, and if he responds the way that he usually does there's no more worry in my mind. So yeah. um, one of those is like, are you going to get this done? And I always ask it. I wait to ask it until it seems to me to be like the worst possible low he could be in. And if he thumbs up, he doesn't ever respond. He just thumbs it up uh, like a tap back. Then I know it's good. He's, he, there's no doubt he's going to finish. And so that came and uh, I was pretty pumped to see that. That's awesome. Well, so Ryan, how do you, how do you travel through not just like a little bit of snow, not just a light dusting, but like feats, feats of snow. <laughs> I don't know if feats is that's how, is that how you say that? <laughs> that's how I described it. Feats. Yeah. It's, um, we probably at mile eight into the race, or I guess maybe a little bit further mile 15 or so. Um, you start seeing snowshoe snowshoe tracks from the people in front of you and you know it starts going across your mind like well maybe it will be less effort and uh you know more beneficial to put my snowshoes on so everyone starts putting their snowshoes on and i just thought it would be for part of the trail but i you know little did i know you do 250 plus miles in snowshoes um for the rest of this race so that uh you know, that was a little bit of a shocker. And then probably the funniest thing about the whole trail is it's, it's pretty much one big game of telephone. You might get somewhere and take a two-hour nap while that allows someone else to catch up to where you were. That might give you a little bit of information. And then you leave, and then you catch up to someone who's taking a little nap or cooking something to eat, and you tell them. So information is being relayed up and down this, you know, this trail as it goes and I think it was morning of day three, you know, the first reports of people getting stomped by moose came out. Um, you know, you don't know how true they are or how exaggerated they are until you finally run into the guy telling the story. And he was wa- walking down the one side of the river and uh, a moose came over the bank and, you know, reared up and started striking him with its front hooves. And he says the only thing that saved, saved him, and he was on skis, was he fell backwards and was using his poles and his skis to stab and kick at this moose. Jeez. But the snow was so deep, you know, probably in those spots of being like six to eight feet that he, every time the moose would hit him, it just pushed him further and further down into the snow. So it really couldn't put all its weight onto him. Um, so that was, you know, that was kind of a crazy story. And in the day you see these moose at, a, you know, a distance a few hundred yards or more and you're all weary, but at night you could literally be walking feet from a moose and you know it's just kind of this this eerie feeling that way yeah were you how close did you did you get to one i probably was never closer than that i saw you know two or three hundred yards but you know there's moose moose use the trail as is their highway too so the whole trail is littered with moose moose tracks and at night you're in some of these black spruce swamps and you see fresh tracks fresh um, you know, moose, moose dung. And it's, uh, you know, they're close, but wow. you just don't know where that's crazy, man. What other kind of like moose encounters did people have? I think two fat bikers from what I hear 
um, a moose came out and they dropped their bikes and took off running and the moose um, stomped their bikes and damaged their bikes and they had to quit. That was a a rumor. I never talked to those people, but there was another night um, between Roan and Nikolai and it was a pretty long push through there where I got to a point in the trail where it sounded like, you know, a pack of wolves were about a quarter mile off the trail and they just howled and howled all night long and um i was pretty tired at that point so i i rolled out my bivy right there and was you know thinking will i ever get a chance to sleep next to a pack of howling wolves ever in my life again um you know so i took that opportunity to to enjoy that were you like the wolves are singing to me they're singing a lullaby i'm going to sleep now i was more like i think they're telling everybody every wolf up ahead that um this guy's coming through. I'd like to think that and they should stay away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, I- I'm one with the wolf. That's funny. So when you get to that certain point of exhaustion, I I got to think like, it's probably kind of dangerous because you might get to the point where you're just like, I don't know if a moose is up here. Who cares? I'm, I'm tired anyways. You know? Yeah. that. Probably about after day two or day three, the if a moose is going to get me, it's going to get me. Attitude is out, you know, and you're not you're not on moose awareness anymore. You've you've already exhausted the mental capacity to worry about it, and you're pretty much just putting your head down and thinking, you know, as long as I keep moving, my grass will come to me. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, what was it like when you got to the river? Um, is that a point where people are worried? about you know i mean i because i have to think it's like iced over on top but like you could break through the ice at certain points i don't think that was ever okay you know ever ever too big a worry there's there's ice and then there's eight feet of snow on top of that ice um these rivers are used as basically winter highways for these um outposts and salmon fishing camps and they call them roadhouses, and there's constantly you'll see two or three snowmobiles a day with like 15 foot long sleds hooked up behind them, and they're just hauling anything from food to propane. And all winter long, they stock these roadhouses. So in the summer, when the guests fly in to fish, you know they have everything they need because it's a lot more expensive to fly stuff in. But we we came into this roadhouse and they served us dinner and let us um, sleep on the floor. And uh, in the summer they get five grand a person to come up there and fish out of the place. Wow. That's yeah. So dang, man, that's crazy. Like you don't think about that, you know, like, I don't know. So I want to ask you how, obviously the trail is completely isolating. Um, but you, you talked about community earlier. So could you kind of give us a percentage, like how much of the of the three hundred ish miles was community, and how much of it was isolation, like where you're by yourself? I would say for for myself personally, I was it probably two hundred fifty miles of of by myself. Um, of course, at certain checkpoints, you'd come in and you might spend six hours, you know, with eight other athletes there. Yeah. But um, everyone was on their own time. Some guys would spend a couple hours. Some would spend more. Um, and some people teamed up, 
you know, from the beginning, knowing it was going to be, is just going to be tough. There was long stretch or stretches of trail that had been blown in because of the wind and drifting. And as one person, it was a lot harder to break and just kind of keep your mind sharp and focused than it yeah. was with, you know, a team of two people where every, you know, hour or so you could switch off and someone else would break and, and find trail that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. What, so, you know, when you're talking to each other, is it mostly just information or, you know, like beta about the trail or like what's coming up or, or is it like just dumb conversations to get your mind off of, you know, the, the pain, pain or tiredness or, you know, things like that. I would say it was probably more reminiscing of, okay. can you believe how, how bad <laughs> the trail was back there? Or can you believe this? Or did you, when you came out on that lake, you know, was it, was it a full moon and did you see the Northern light? You know, so there, I, you know, there was a lot of, you know, reminiscing, I guess, from, from points, but I've never been in a race where, you know, there were Kiwis there. There were, um, you know, people from Spain, there's people from all over the world that have the same dream of doing this trail. So when you're in a room, you, you know, you just, I guess the amount of people and experiences are, are so vast that it's just mind boggling to, you know, ask people about, you know, how they got into this or, you know, what, what's, what's fueling their fire to, yeah. you know, to make it happen. And I mean, to me, that was just, just amazing how this trail in the middle of Alaska has, you know, sent out the phone call to so many people to make it, you know, their life's kind of dream to get this thing done. Yeah. When, when you talked about fueling the fire, you know, like obviously without giving specifics or anything, but did you find that most people were out there for the same reason or similar reasons? Um, yeah, I think everyone's out there for, for very similar, you know, reasons. It's a, it's a goal that they acquired and, you know, some people are doing it to raise money for charity. Um, you know, it just shows, just shows, I guess, you know, how extensive, you know, something like cancer is or, or mental yeah. health, you know, yeah. everyone, you know, kind of has their own personal reasons, but plus they've shouldered other, you know, reasons, you know, to get this done, to show people that you can be strong and you can do this. And, you know, it's kind of a combination of all that. I yeah. think the guy that got uh, attacked by the moose, the skier uh, that was terrorized for a couple hours, he was saying that all he wanted to do was make it to Rhone because he had promised a friend who had passed away. And so I think there are a lot of personal reasons, um, but specific to the individual as to why you would want to tackle such a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Emily, when you were, you know, obviously, so Ryan's out there and you're with your family and friends and like, you know, doing, you know, exploring Alaska on your own terms, you know, um, are you meeting families of other people racing at the time or, or is that kind of just, you know, like, I don't know. Did you have people to talk to like, Hey, my, you know, husband's out there. My wife's also out there. My brother's out there. Well, it, it was interesting because to the short answer is no, not really. Um, I had, uh, a friend, uh, Kari Gibbons, who uh, did the race on foot, her mom and friend worked in the aid station at Shell Lake. 
And so it was kind of neat to talk to them um, to see what they were experiencing. And then uh, when they returned, we kind of met back up um, before the Rangers got back. Um, I actually ran into Steve Cannon at the Girdwood ah, Brewery. Nice. I walked in. He had uh, he had saw the writing on the wall for the bikers and and just thought, you know, I'm going to be buying a $700 plane ticket home at some point unless I turn around now. Um, and so walked into the Girdwood Brewery with my friend sister, and I looked up and I was like, Steve, is that you? <laughs> you know, he was. Um, so it was nice to talk to him because he gave me a lot of like firsthand intel on the first day. I mean, he was trying to be nice and not be like super Debbie Downer about how awful it was out there, knowing yeah. that, you know, Brian was out there, but that was neat. And then um, what I found was really interesting was those first three days when I could really talk to Ryan, I didn't post much social media wise um, because I felt like I had everything that I kind of needed. And I realized, one that was kind of selfish because there were a lot of people following along. And I had a, a group of people that I was texting updates to and stuff like that. Um, but when I lost the ability to talk to him is when I started updating on social media. And it was almost like reassuring me to know that like everybody else was as kind of helpless as I was in terms of information. Um, and to see how much people were following along and supporting him, um, it kind of occupied my time and made it a little, selfishly, it made it easier for me. Yeah, yeah. What what kind of adventures were you going on at the same time? Oh, I had my own moose account encounter. No way. Um, All right, this I'm gonna just go call this episode moose encounters. Yeah, <laughs> my moose encounter were not very terrifying, but if you ask me um, later in the evening, I always say uh, I got charged by a moose, <laughs> uh, and that was really just cross country skiing with my mom and our host. And we stopped on the trail for about three minutes while it was um, standing there. And then we couldn't decide whether we wanted to wait or turn around. And it took one step in our direction. And so we said it charged us and we had to turn around. <laughs> there you go. That counts. Yeah. But no, um, there's Kincaid Park right where we were staying that has thousands, or not thousands, but um, hundreds of miles of different types of trails. And so I ran that pretty much every day. It was actually pretty cold. So yeah. um, nothing, no, no long runs, but yeah, I was stressed about it personally from a training standpoint, but you know, now every race is canceled. So it was not for, it was just preparing you for that basically. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ryan, how, how cold did it get out there? And did you have something that told you how cold because I think at a certain point, I just wouldn't want to know. I was just like, yeah, it's cold. I don't know. Nothing I can do about it. Um, I would say, well, the day I finished, the thermometer, you know, hanging in the people's trees at, at the finish line got down to negative 40. I don't think when I was out there, it was ever that cold. But we, we I didn't have anything that told me. I think I was probably in the coldest of maybe a negative 20 with, maybe a 20 knot wind blowing. Um, but yeah, you could definitely, you could definitely tell, you know, some days it dropped 20 degrees and what felt like 30 minutes, depending on your terrain. And, you know, you had to, you had to be really ready for it. You can't be like, Oh, now I'm cold. You have to kind of have the attitude of, you know, I, I can tell it's getting cold. I've got to be ahead of this, you know, ahead of this game. 
Yeah. How did you, how did you deal with that? Cause I mean, you know, did you ever have moments where you're like, Oh, this isn't good. Like I might be getting frostbite or, you know, I'm not, I wasn't prepared for this moment or anything like that. Or were you pretty much pretty focused on, you know, uh, like keeping all your fingers and toes? Um, I was pretty focused on keeping my fingers and toes, but I had my watch set to beep every mile, and I knew every mile was like 22 to 24 minutes at that point. Um, So I would, every time my watch would beep or buzz me, you know, I'd go through uh, moving of the fingers, you know, applying pressure that way. The last day it dropped about 20 degrees, and I hadn't been able to get all my stuff um all my socks and stuff completely dry and nickelized. So everything I had was damp by that point of, you know, just snowing so much and and it was just wet. When you're in um, snowshoes, your feet tend to, I think, sweat more and take on more water. So there was a point um, before McGrath about 20 miles out that I was, you know, getting nervous and debating on, you know, what, you know, what do I do? Do I just put my head down for the next, you know, six-ish, seven-ish hours and wait to see what my feet look like at McGrath or do I address them now? And luckily I was traveling with um, another racer, Beat, who was in the full thousand. And I just said to him, I said, hey, you know, we're within shot of Nikolai. Is there any chance you have an extra pair of socks? And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, no problem. So he grabbed a pair of socks out, gave them to me, and I went in and put on – two 15 liter, um, dry compression sacks are, um, yeah, sacks over my socks and then put those, put my feet in the shoes, you know, that way so that my shoes were already wet, Yeah. but the, um, the dry bags kept, you know, they call it a moisture um, barrier. And then, you know, once I did that, my feet immediately warmed back up and everything, um, you know, everything was a lot better, but without that, I probably would have had to make the choice of just going the um, vapor barrier, you know, right against my skin and putting the wet socks over the vapor barrier. But it was just, you know, there's some of these little tricks or or whatnot out there, you know, you'll never, you just never think you're going to need. And then all of a sudden you find yourself needing them. I always, my question to people when they're like, is there anything else you want to ask me about, you know, the Iditarod? I'm just like, well, tell me everything that I don't know that I sh- need to know, you know, yeah. And, yeah. They, and they always start, they always start laughing at that question because you just never know what you're going to need to know. Yeah. What kind of other like little tricks, you know, are there? Um, I had to keep the GPS around my neck and, you know, check it every 30 minutes. There was a couple of places on the trail where people, you know, took the wrong trail. And for one guy, it ended his trip you know, ended up way off trail and had to call in for a rescue. And oh, there's other people that just wasted, you know, a half a day um, from getting on the wrong trail. But you were, you were constantly, you know, for the most part, it's fairly unmarked. So you're constantly um, relying on a trail being in, in front of you. And if it was blown over, you know, you went into full kind of orienteering mode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when, when you're, you know, it seems like when you're getting close to the end, that's actually where some of the mistakes can be made or like some people might, 
not be as diligent and in the face of some dangers, you know, because you're getting to the end. It's kind of like summit fever when you're climbing a mountain, right? Um, you're so close to the top. You just want to get there. And it sounds like to me, like, you know, like, did you have that temptation at all? Where you're just like, I'm just gonna put my head down, you know, I don't know. Cause it seems like that could have actually caused some issues. Yeah, I was, I did not have that. I was worried about, about it the whole time. You know, some really good friends were like, trust your GPS. I had used a route um, that Lars Danner had done a couple of years earlier. He was like, trust my, you know, trust the GPS, trust the route. But when you'd get closer to a city, or I guess they're not really cities, but <laughs> you know, they call them cities or towns or villages, um, there's a lot more snowmobile traffic. So the, the trails are intersecting more. Um, you know, in the beginning, you kind of just rely on only one trail, but the closer you get to a new city, the more trails there, they, there are, and you, you constant, you're constantly looking for footprints and, you know, bicycle tire tracks. And even with those, you're constantly, you know, looking at your GPS, just double checking, because if it's not uncommon for all five people to take a wrong, a wrong, you know, direction, and you don't want to be, you know, you you're looking at it being like, I wonder why they went this way, but yet my GPS tells me to go this way. You know, what's, what's the real call here? And, um, you know, I kind of stuck to my, to my GPS the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's a, that, that would be an interesting, you know, moment of decision, but you kind of have to just choose the strategy. Like, Hey, if I'm going to trust my GPS, then that's what I need to do. I need to stick to the game plan. Yeah. If you know, there might be a trail that stays on the river that goes into town, but it's three or four miles longer than, you know, a trail that goes overland that goes into the town that, you know, they, the natives use, um, you know, as a shortcut basically. And at four miles, it's a couple hours of time. Um, you know, it's kind of a big, it's kind of a big deal. It's, the trail really would have to be fast on the river to make up that time over the, you know, the overland route. So, you know, you really, you really have your choice in, in front of you there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you kind of like, I don't I know this is really hard to do, but can you kind of describe the Alaskan wilderness? Like, is there anywhere else on earth that you've been that can even compare, you know, cause you guys, you've been to some pretty wild places in the middle of nowhere, but you know, the way I kind of fantasize about Alaska is that it's the great wilderness and like, there's no, like nothing will ever beat it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've been to Glacier Park, you know, remote areas of Montana. We've been to Patagonia. Um, I mean, there's nothing that compares to Alaska, especially, you know, the going up and over the Brooks range. Um, it, it's just kind of a mind opening, um, you know, soak it all in kind of experience and, um, you know, really, really make you feel that, you know, you don't really don't need much in life to, you know, to get the enjoyments out of it, I guess. Um, there was a time where I was crossing a lake that's probably seven or eight miles long in the heart of the Brooks range. And, you know, I was the only light I could, I could see and the only light I had seen for 20 some miles. Um, you know, it was kind of like, Alaska just opened up and gave me this, you know, brief moment of history to, you know, just kind of call it my own. Yeah. Wow. 
Were you ever overwhelmed by its vastness? Yeah, like every day. <laughs> every second. <laughs> yeah. When, when it got more remote in communication, it was always, it is so amazing out here. I'm not dead. It's so beautiful. I'm hungry. Everything was about the, the beauty and like just being out in, in that like, and when even after the race was over and we were driving around and he would just, I just see him staring at the mountains and he's like, you have no idea. It was like those mountains times like 50. I'm like, I know, I have no idea. I got it. You know? <laughs> but I don't think that unless you do this race or you're somebody that does extensive backcountry back there, you'll never really fully understand kind of how just awe-inspiring it is. Yeah. Wow, man. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of people that would, that said, you know, part of the hardest part about this was when you're done, you know, and people come back and they're like, well, was it hard? And you're like, yeah, you know, like you really have no idea how hard. And then, you know, they ask you these questions. There's like, you know, what is the best way to describe your experience? And they're going to be like, you just, you're just going to be able to draw in a blank because there's no way to describe it. So I guess my answer to that is like, I kind of say it's like, you know, to get it to where most people can understand it, it would be, you know, it's the Super Bowl. There's one second left on the clock. You only have to take the snap, down the ball, and you win, you know. That next second of your life is going to be the most memorable experience you've ever had. Well, for me, you know, there was eight days of that feeling every single second. Um, you know, it was just it, – it was that – that nice to be out there um you know i just felt like i was winning the super bowl over and over and over again wow that's amazing man so on that note i have to ask was there any moment of self-doubt was there any moment where you're like i'm gonna lose the super bowl or <laughs> or you know any time where you got really low because i think i said on our last podcast you just seem like such a like steady like level-headed guy um, which is what you need in an endurance race like this. But did you have any of those low moments? I thought, I think coming into, I think it was uh, Finger Lake um, at the checkpoint where their first drop bag was, it, it was a long run in there and it was really, really windy, blowing so hard. Um, I was with another guy, Chris, and you know, we're like three or four miles out and all of a sudden we see like this headlight, you know, it's the middle of the morning, but you, you couldn't see very far in front of you. And we saw this headlight and I literally said to myself, like, they're canceling the race. They've sent this snowmobile out to, to pick us up. It was, it was just blowing so bad. The conditions were so bad. The trail was non-existent. And I, I thought they'd sent someone out to pick us up and, you know, our race was either going to be suspended or, you know, maybe canceled. And uh, as the snowmobile came closer and closer, it just went right by us. And, <laughs> you know, and I was just like, holy smokes, you know, and as a guy carrying some supplies to and from, you know, different, different places, I guess. And all of a sudden we roll into that tent, and, you know, and you look at the other people and they all had the same look on their face, like, wow, but that was kind of an eye-opening experience of like, you know, when they say remote and you're on your own, I mean, they they really mean it. There's a lot of races that are say, you know, we're wilderness this, self-rescue this. But 
I mean, nothing compared to this Alaska experience. Yeah. What was the longest section between aid stations? Like, what was the most remote place, you know, that you felt? Um, probably, I mean, Rome's just a cabin in the, you know, on a river in the middle of nowhere. Um, you, when, before you get into Rome, you, you come down on a river and it looks like a highway of wolf tracks. Um, you know, it's just, just wolf tracks everywhere. That's so you come in there and they give you all the broths you can eat for the most part. I had five. <laughs> and then from, from Rome to Nikolai, I believe it's about 80 ish miles or, or so maybe maybe less than that but it's it's a long stretch and there's also one small little cabin about 40 miles out of Rhone um that they say you know you can go in and um just get out of the weather i don't they say you have to collect firewood if you if you go there but long story short is cabin had been snowed in and no one had been to it so between Rhone and Nikolai, I think I slept in my bivy listening to the wolves for like six hours, partially because leaving Rhone, the trail was packed. It was fast. It was so much fun. And then it started snowing. And after about a foot of snow fell, I, you know, I pulled over, pulled into my bivy, listened to the wolves howl, woke up the next morning, looked outside um, my bivy and no one had been through. Um, and, you know, so I went back to bed for a couple more hours, looked outside, no one had been through. So eventually I was like, well, I got to be the one that starts moving. So I got up, started moving, um, within like five miles, came across a couple other sites of people that had bivvied and started moving. Um, I could tell, but then the snow just kept coming down and coming down. So I got a little bit further up and was like, well, I'm just going to stop and boil some water, you know, have a nice warm, um, hot chocolate and, it in one of these um, freeze-dried meals that I have and maybe someone will come along and take their turn at breaking trail and sure enough I get about half water melted and another guy Chris comes along and you know he leads for a while and starts starts breaking trail and then we pretty much um, rolled almost all the way to Nikolai for the next 30 some miles um, together he stopped short a little bit to, to take a nap and I just kept kept going into Nikolai but that, that was a really really long long stretch that you know tested a lot of people with their gear and um their motivation for sure yeah yeah are people like when you you mentioned the wolves are i i know the moose are the biggest danger but are people kind of do they is there any fear of of wolves or anything like that or or is that just like i don't know they'll they'll leave you alone for the most part i think it's an elite they'll leave you alone for the most part i think enough people you know, would, would shoot at a wolf if they saw one, you know, some of these backcountry guys. Um, oh yeah. So I think, I think the wolves have gotten, you know, pretty skittish and tell you the truth with that much snow, they could pretty much eat whatever they wanted to eat. Um, you know, because nothing can really run away from them, you know, off trail, it was so deep. It was just, uh, you know, the animals couldn't get away. And in that section, they call it the burn and it gets really cold there but Alaska has a buffalo season, and buffalo season was in, so you would see some random random hunter camps in the burn, and you know they'd be out there hunting that buffalo. And my guess is they try to spook the buffalo closer to the trail and then shoot it, and then they gut it out and you know butcher it up, and then they fly it out of there. But 
So you'd come along like a 200-pound gut pile of a bison that had been shot next to the trail and cleaned. So I, I'm also guessing the wolves in that area, you know, had a smorgasbord of, of food too. They're like, why would I eat this random dude in snowshoes when I could just eat this giant pile of buffalo guts? Yeah, and we smelled a lot worse, I'm sure, than the <laughs> buffalo guts. So. The like, buffalo guts smells nice right now compared to these guys. That's hilarious. Yeah. Did any of, like, do the hunters or the snowmobilers from the towns, like, do they understand this is going on, you know, like, and that people run it? And Because I know the dog sled is obviously, you know, iconic, but do people understand, like, oh, there are people out there running this thing or riding mountain bikes on this thing? Or when you see them, are they just looking at you like, what in the hell are you doing? Or, like, do you need help? Are you lost out here? No, they're, I mean, they're all pretty amazed. You, you know, it, for them, too, they had to, you know, snowmobile 150 some miles into the wilderness to get to this place. Yeah. So they're pretty adventurous also. Um, and just as much as you want them to pat you on the back for getting there, they kind of want you to recognize, you know, like, Oh, it's really tough getting here on a snowmobile. You had to go up and over a rainy pass. You know, they're, they're puffing their chests out and, you know, sh showing you how, how tough they are in their nice big tents and wood burning stoves. Um, <laughs> So there's, you know, it's a, it's a trail, so there's a lot of respect out there. But one of the funnier stories was is you come up on these buffalo hunters, and they, they come out, and they're just like, oh, yeah, we're going to go out and, you know, look for buffalo tomorrow. And you're sitting there talking, and you're like, well, how many have you seen so far? And they're like, well, we haven't seen any. And you're like, you do know, like, 300 yards over there, there's two of them just eating on the side of the hill, right? <laughs> you know, and they're like, what, where? And, you know, which is which is kind of funny. I mean, Buffalo, I don't think the hunting of them is once, once you find them, it's not like, you know, they're this elusive creature. Yeah. Um, but that being said, one Buffalo can feed two to three families all winter long and they do need managed. So I understand the hunting of them, but it's not like this highly skilled endeavor. It's more of a, I guess a trip and, um, just a overall experience, yeah. um, to do, to do this. So, yeah. But it was it was funny to it was funny to see the looks on their faces. <laughs> so you know when you're coming into McGrath and you're getting towards the end, like how are you feeling? Are you kind of upset that it's the adventures nearing an end, or are you excited, or are you just like I just want to eat a burger and drink a beer? Like what does that feel like? You know, it's all, I'd say it's, it's all the above. Um, you know, it's really cold coming into McGrath. You kind of come in on a road that's almost like 20 miles long um, on the Overland Road. So it spits you out on this road and it's like 20 miles of just, it should be this nice, really fast road. You'd think you could bust out 15 minute miles on, but it was just so snow covered. And then they call it the Moose Gauntlet which every moose in that part of the state uses this road to travel up and down and eat off of. Yeah. So the whole road was all punched through with these huge moose tracks. So you should be able to take your snowshoes off and, um, you know, just be in your sneakers, but there are so many holes you needed to keep your snowshoes on. And I mean, in 18 ish, 20 miles, it's still a long, you know, a long way. So you really start thinking about the finish line eight hours before it's ever there. 
and then you come into town and you know i ran into some kids along the road and i'm like well how far to the finish and they're like a oh, mile mile and a half i'm like awesome so about two miles up the road i come to a sign that says two more miles to the finish <laughs> and i couldn't tell if they just had no idea or they thought it was funny or or what but then you're just walking down the road and all of a sudden like the snow bank on the right side of the road opens up. There's a sign that says I did a rod and you look over and there's a, you know, just a family's house and there's a half dozen bikes in the driveway and four or five sleds. And you kind of just pull up in front and you unhook your sled, grab your clothing out and you walk through the door and there's some people eating breakfast or lunch and they just turn around and say, nice job. And a couple people on the couch give you the thumbs up and that's it. You know, there's no cowbell, no, no nothing. And then someone's like, Oh, by the way, there's a box over there in the corner with a patch and a t-shirt, you know, go ahead and grab one. And you're, you're kind of like, okay, you know, and so you do this and you're sitting down and this family opens up their house and cooks you all the food you could eat. And they have tons of beer and you're sitting at the table eating. And while well, the next guy comes in, you know, and, you kind of just do the same thing that everyone did to you. And, you know, it's, it's just how it is. If you're there to, you know, expect a hundred people to be cheering for you because you just did the hardest thing of your life, it's not going to happen. But, um, you know, it really, it, it, when I look back at it, it you know, it, it was the perfect ending. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's beautiful. Um, it's about the journey. Like, you always hear that. It's about the journey, not the journey's end. And I just, I feel like that kind of like encapsulates that idea. Yep. Yep. No, I, I agree with you. It, it's funny just to see the look of exhaustion and, um, and immediately moving to comfort and then just kind of a bewilderment on people's faces. And when they take off all their gear and they're getting warm and they've got these wood burning stoves, just cranking you know it's pretty fun they're like so uh do you think i can get a plane out today and you just look at him and be like no <laughs> you have to you pretty much have to check in with the airport every day and see if they have any open open seats on any of the planes normally um you could charter a flight out or something like that but with the the dog sled race coming up um all the planes were busy so i i luckily was only there maybe a day and a half some people were there longer and luckily some people got out a little bit sooner, but the whole, the whole letting go of just, you'll get out when you get out thing, you, there's no real plan, you know, plan for getting out of there, which was, you know, just another um, topping on the cake of, of, of the race and the remoteness of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and then at the same time you have people going through, right. Who are continuing to do, the 1000 mile, which unfortunately I just saw the news yesterday about the race. Yep. I think the lead three mountain bikers, I think they will be allowed to finish. Okay. Um, they're off the sea ice, but everyone else, um, mountain bikers and the mushers that hadn't been passed there yet, or they've all gotten pulled off or flown off. I, I talked to some of the guys I came in just ahead of me in the McGrath came the first place guy in the thousand foot race beat. And, um, you know, he was, he was all business when he got there and, you know, we're sitting there putting our feet up and sh showing how much they s have swollen up. And this guy still got 700 miles left, <laughs> left to go. But, you know, he yeah. was just a machine and, and, you know, you just picked up so many, 
so many tricks from him on the trail. He's already been to Nome five times. Jeez. Um, yep. Yep. So it's sure. I mean, I guess you'll get to Nome when Nome lets you get there is kind of the motto for the thousand. Yeah. So w- what happened this year? The sea ice was melting, you know, or it wasn't sturdy enough or what? Cause yeah, there's that point no, where so, you cross the bay, right? Like on the ocean. Yep. Yep. So for the Southern route, you go, you know, you go across, go across the bay or the sea um, is what happened is out in the ocean, there was some big storms that created huge, you know, think of it as six or eight foot waves. When, when these waves, they still are traveling under the ice. And the bigger the waves, the more, you know, the water is pushing up and down in this ice. And eventually the ice just kind of cracks, gets big cracks in it. And then the water comes up through those cracks and they call that overflow. Wow. Some of the dog sled people, you know, were going along and all of a sudden are up to their neck, you know, going across the sea and in overflow water. And of course it's cold. Jeez. Um, you, you know, so it got, and then they, they um, you know, hit their emergency beacons to come and get rescued, and they had to get rescued by helicopter. But it just, you know, it, it truly was the perfect storm. A week, a week earlier, it might have dropped down in temperature again, you know, to allow people to go across. Or a week later, everyone would have been across, and it wouldn't have been any problem. And then to, to top it off, um, some of these towns started shutting down and saying, you know, we don't want any, any of the Iditarod racers dog sled or foot bike to come into town because we don't want, you know, the virus to spread. Yeah. So instead of letting you in town to get your supplies and stuff, they put a tent on the side of town and anything that you may have mailed as a drop bag, they just kind of threw into the tent. Jeez. Um, so you really didn't know what you'd get when you, you know, when you got there. Wow. Well, I so wonder, kind of a, yeah, I wanted to ask form. you about that. You got done and then you got, <laughs> you finished this like, isolating out in the wilderness kind of situation. And now you finish in like the weirdest time in, you know, our history anyways. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we, I got a little bit of information on the trail, you know, but you just have every day. It just seems to double, you know, the severity of what, what we seem to be going through. Um, And I can't even imagine for the guys that, you know, are trying the thousand, you know, what, what they were thinking at any moment, you know, that their trip was, or their, their dream was going to be, going to be pulled on them. Um, it's, it's just, it's just not, it's just an odd moment. I don't, I, I don't even know what to, you know, to say about it, I guess. Yeah. Our friend Devin, who was following along when he finished, he said, just tell Ryan the world's ending and he should just keep going to Nome. And I thought, <laughs> You know, he might think that that's a good idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. But maybe come back and get me first. Yeah, yeah. Well, from two seasoned ultra runners like you guys, um, who have done some of the hardest events in the whole entire world at this point, what lessons have you taken away from ultra running that, uh, you know, have been useful? And I know we're only like one week into or like a week and a half into this whole thing. And it's hard because no one really knows how long it's going to last or anything like that. Um, but like what lessons have been beneficial for you? Um, I guess for me, it's my life, you, you know, incorporates running or ultra running, but it's, you know, it's not my, it's not my whole life. Yeah. 
um, I guess, you know, what's really important is, you know, my friends, my family and, and everything else. And if, you know, a race gets, gets canceled, it's, it's, it's not the end of the, it's not the end of the world, you know? Yeah. I would say just knowing that the outside is there as an option to go and distract or enjoy when there's a lot of other things that we can't do. Um, so I'm thankful that I, that I know about trails and I know that they are a happy place. Um, and then I would also say that our, uh, ultra running communities, memes and gifts are pretty damn funny. And so there's been a lot of laughing, um, you know, to go along with kind of this very uncertain and, and troubling time. Yeah. I have to say like, just from my experience, cause we're, uh, Ryan and I were messaging this morning and I was like, uh, let me let me let me do the podcast after my run and i went from being stuck inside for a couple days because we got snowed in and like i didn't want to take my kids out oh this is gonna make ryan laugh like when it was 20 degrees (laughs) i know right i was whining about the wind in my run yesterday it was like 16 miles per hour he was like "Mm -hmm." um uh, I just realized in the middle of like saying that sentence, I'm like, oh my god, who like l- remember who you're talking to, dude? Um, no, um... no, Chris, don't do that to him. He <laughs> he's, he puts his shoes on just like we do. <laughs> um, but I so you know being inside and all this stuff, and like I was just irritated, acting like a complete jerk probably, and then I went for my run, and it was nice and sunny, and within like literally probably about five minutes i'm like oh i feel better like it feels better to be outside than stuck inside and i just think that's such a a huge lesson like however you may get outside like i think that's like a something to keep in mind you know totally we had uh friends the other day that it was one of the first warmer days in wisconsin and they sent us a picture of the kids playing outside and they had sleeping bags and reclining camp chairs. And like they were completely bundled up, but the sun was out and they just were like soaking up that vitamin B. And it just, it looked so like good for the soul just to be outside. They weren't even doing anything physical. It was just being outside. Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah, that's, yeah. that's huge. So, well, awesome. Well, Ryan, anything else you want to add or, you know, like I said, I know in our podcast is such a minuscule way of capturing this whole experience that you went through um i'm super grateful you you're sharing some stories with me though like i'm just so inspired and just kind of like awestruck by just the idea of of running through you know the alaskan wilderness so so thank you for that but do you have anything else uh you know that i i didn't ask about or anything else you definitely wanted to mention um, I guess the only thing I would I would say is, you know, if you if you ever have any questions about a race like this or any other, you know, opportunity that's kind of outside the norm, just find someone who's done it, you know, go back through the history of the results and just shoot them a message. Ninety nine times out of a hundred, they're probably gonna say, Pick up the phone and call me, you know, I'll give you two hours of my time and tell you everything I need, you know, I need to know. Um I reached out to so many people about this race, you know, that you just felt like you were bugging people with questions. And I'd split up my questions between, you know, a dozen different people. But, you know, long, long story short is, you know, everyone's paying it forward um, to the other, 
you know, to the other people that have helped them out and uh, just don't be scared to ask. Um, it's, it's a, it's a tough race, but it's, you know, if, if you put your plan together, there's no doubt in my mind that, um, you know, a lot of people can do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, that's something I've learned from this podcast too. Like, you know, if you reach out and ask somebody to talk, talk about something they're passionate about, most of the times they're going to say, yeah, let's sit down and talk, you know? Um, because who, who doesn't like to talk about things that they're completely, you know, in love with. I agree. Yeah. So awesome, man. Well, Hey, uh, best of luck in future adventures. And, uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again at some point. Uh, so, and I, you know, I talked to Emily, I think it was this summer and she mentioned a bunch of the races in South Dakota, um, around where you guys are. And I looked up some of them, like the black Hills, uh, Ultra. I know it looked awesome. So, you know, who knows at this point, you know, when, uh, what races will be canceled and which ones will, you know, be able to be run. But that's definitely one that was, you know, kind of caught my eye. So I'll let you know. Is your 50k still on? Uh, it's still on as of right now. Yeah. So, um, okay. yeah, it's, it's May 23rd. So it's right on like the kind of border of wow. when, uh, right. you know, like the who knows date <laughs> basically. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I was laughing because this is going to be our last big training weekend for Zumbro. Poor Zumbro canceled third year in a row. Ugh. And I know they can't catch a break. And so I looked at the training plan that I use um, for my next race. And I'm already in week three of training for that. So it went from four and a half and five hour long runs this weekend to an hour and a half and two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like, well, training for the training was really solid. <laughs> well, I, in my opinion too, though, I'm like, it's going to allow people to be kind of creative with what they're doing um, for training right? you know, or what they're training for, uh, you know, because you see these people who go out and do these really cool self-made events. And I've always been inspired by it. But, you know, you always have the fallback of a race and you're like, well, I guess I'll just do the race, you know. Um, but now I'm yeah. like, we don't we might not have a choice. So wouldn't it be cool if you did some of these things? that would be like your own creation that you thought would, would be kind of cool. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was and, interesting. I got really sorry. Sorry. I didn't say yesterday I was on a Facebook group and this woman was like, I don't know if I can do this race self-support, this distance self-supported. And I just kept thinking like the aid station is a luxury that, <laughs> you know, like your training and your, your physical and mental strength will get you to the distance, but it's just a matter. I mean, the, the aid station is not doing anything for you. I don't know if that's true, but I just feel like people can do so much more than they think they can. Yeah. And this is a good opportunity to get out there and prove that. Yeah, for sure. And you almost, I mean, it almost helps you think of the logistics a little bit more, you know, like, you know, when Ryan's in, in the middle of uh, Rowan to Nikolai and it's 80 ish miles, possibly like you got to consider those logistics and the things you're packing and, you know, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of a similar idea in that sense. Yeah. True. Yeah. Oh, so, and right. for me, I'm like tomorrow morning, I'm just going to go run 
and like I don't have a plan and I'm just going to go from my house and see where it takes me, uh, which is Amen kind of exciting, that. right? That's super cool. That's so, nice. Yeah. No, that's amazing. I tried that today, but the road Ryan wanted me to check out uh, ended 100 feet past where we saw it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the downside to that strategy. <laughs> Well, no, because then I had to figure out where to go from there. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, awesome. Well, it was good talking with you guys. And uh, like I said, we'll have you back on at some point for sure. And, uh, you know, keep keep sane during all this for sure and keep running. Yep, you too, Chris. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Thanks. All right, guys, that wraps up the episode. Um, huge thanks to Ryan and Emily. As always, they've been some of my favorite guests to come on the show. Uh, the, the Iditarod is just mind blowing. Um, and it's so cool. Like I'm, I'm so excited that I actually get the opportunity to talk to somebody who has taken this thing on. Um, it's, it's just awe inspiring to me. I think it's amazing. And, and, you know, someday I'd love to get up to Alaska just to, to see what it's like, but then again, to see it from their perspective by yourself in the middle of the mountains is just incredible. Um, so huge thanks to them. We're actually going to do another, uh, kind of, we're going to talk to a guy they met, uh, on the trail, Gavin Hennigan. Um, he ended up winning the, uh, 350 mile race. Uh, he's this Irish adventurer. <laughs> he's this Irish adventurer. We're going to talk to him in a couple weeks. Um, because Ryan and Emily helped set up that interview. And not only are we going to talk about Iditarod with him, but we're going to talk about rowing across the whole Atlantic Ocean by yourself. Um, is awesome, man. Why did man. you say I couldn't hear you? We're going to talk about rowing the Atlantic Ocean by yourself. Uh, Harper, you're here. I'm here with Harper, my favorite little lady. We've been spending 24-7 together, really, for the last couple weeks. Uh, do you want to go on an adventure someday yes what kind of adventure do you want to go on tell me about it i don't know what oh let's talk about this then you've done a couple trail runs harper do you remember that where you've ran those races and you get uh root beer at the end and and all that fun stuff and hot dogs and stuff what do you think about that can you tell us about that experience? It's yummy. Okay, what about the running part? Because there's been moments where you've been pretty tired, huh? It was okay. Okay. Do you have a your normal voice with you? Yes. <laughs> All right. Let me tell you. Let me ask about this then. What is your spirit animal? If you have a favorite animal that you wish you could be, what would that be? A jaguar. Why a jaguar? That's a cool answer. I don't know because I love jaguars. Okay. What do you think dad would be? What do you think I would be? My spirit animal? A dragon. A dragon? <laughs> what? Why a dragon? <laughs> Why would I be a dragon? I don't know. Because I could fly and breathe fire? Yes. <laughs> and I live on top of mountains in a cave? Uh, maybe. Maybe. Cool. Um, when we've gone camping in the past, 
what do you think about like camping or being in the mountains and things like that? Well, it's fun. Okay. What do you like about it? I love eating marshmallows. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember last year we all went camping um, about 30 minutes from our house? I took you and Zoe and I brought the one person tent because dad is stubborn. And I was like, I don't know. I'm going to be in there with like two tiny kids. We'll be fine. Do you remember this? And I brought one person tent and we got in there because it started storming and it started raining and lightning and thundering. Do you remember that? No, I do not, Dad. Oh, okay. <laughs> what do you want to talk about then? I don't know. What do you want to talk about? Uh, well, I, I want to talk about camping and spirit animals and running your race. <laughs> I don't even know what to talk. Okay. Um, do you, what's your favorite memory? What's your favorite thing you've ever done? I don't know. What's yours? Oh, my favorite thing I've ever done? I mean, honestly, I gotta say, having you kids, that's the craziest adventure of all time. Right? Actually, you I do like him. I like my parents and my cat <laughs> and my sisters cool cool all right do you have anything else your two little sisters what, <laughs> what do you like to do with your two little sisters play with them fascinating <laughs> we were talking the other day you want to climb a mountain with me no you said that the other day because I wrote it down. You said, hey, Dad, I want to climb a mountain with you. Or can I when I'm older? Remember? I think you said that when I was in fifth grade. Exactly. Yeah, when you're in fifth grade, we can climb a mountain. Oh, and then the other day in dad school, we learned about Mount Everest. What do you know about Mount Everest? It's the tallest mountain in Colorado. Mean in the world. <laughs> um, does it look easy to climb up? Maybe. Did actually no. It looks really hard to climb up, huh? It looks kind of scary. Yes, to me. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Do you think anyone's gonna listen to this outro? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> what are we going to do the rest of the day? <laughs> I don't know. What do you want to do the rest of the day? I don't know. What do you know? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> on that note, we're going to end the podcast. Harper, can you say, um, I hope you guys are staying uh, happy and healthy and, <laughs> and having adventures the best you can and not, you know, losing your mind in the quarantine. I don't know. You can't, you can't say that? I don't know. Can you say like a Bigfoot? Like a Bigfoot. Oh, my God. You just blew out everybody's ear. I'm going to get so many one-star reviews on iTunes now. <laughs> <laughs> 
like it. All right. Well, this has been like a Bigfoot. If you've stuck in for these last six minutes, good on you, I guess. Uh, all right. And that's where we're going to wrap it. We'll talk to you next week.